You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the fourth season of the Dramatist Guild Presents Talk Back. I'm your host, Christine Toy Johnson. We've shifted our focus this year to talk about craft and inspiration. Our guests this season are my colleagues and friends from the Council of the Dramatist Guild of America. Our guests will give us a unique look into how they write, what makes a good story, and what drives them to keep working on the DG Council. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Back. Lisa Crone and John Weidman and I have a long history that starts at the top of the stairs at Stephen Sondheim's house. You'll hear that story and more as I sit down with my longtime friends and colleagues, Lisa and John. John talks about the origin of what inspired him to write Pacific Overtures, and Lisa takes us through how she learned how to connect with her audience to become the writer she is today. Thank you so much for joining me today. Will you please introduce yourselves to our listeners, Lisa? I'm John Weidman. And I'm sitting next to Lisa Crone. <laughs> okay. So we have Lisa slash John and John slash Lisa. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's not only are we really good friends, but I just draw so much inspiration from both of you. And like all guests this season we're having with us, we all serve alongside each other on the Dramatist Guild Council. I wanted to give a little background that John has served on the council since 1993 and was president from 1999 to 2009. Thank you for your service. And Lisa was first elected to the council in 2010, and then you served as vice president until 2021. I think it's worth saying that the, the boundaries between these various offices are <laughs> relatively fluid. They are. <laughs> what the treasurer does or doesn't do as compared to what the secretary, it's a, right. it's, it, there's room, there's room for different skills in almost every one of these positions. Yes. I'm finding that to be true <laughs> as I'm now in my second year as quote unquote treasurer of the right. guild. Yes. We're a team. That's for sure. <laughs> but what we haven't really talked about publicly, and John reminded me of this a couple of months ago, that we, the three of us actually have an earlier connection. I'm going to take us back to 1989, and we were all at a party at Stephen Sondheim's house for the closing night of the off-Broadway revival of Pacific Overtures, which, of course, John wrote the book for. And I was in the cast, and Lisa was there. Well, I was there for just much less fancy reasons than either of you. I had, I think, moved to New York around that time, and my roommate, who was a friend of mine from college, ran Follow Spot on the show. And she got me work as a sort of fill-in usher in the house staff. And so I saw the show again and again, and it was really an incredible, like I can feel it in my body, the experience of sitting on those steps and watching the show again and again. It was really a beautiful production of a beautiful show. And then I, I tagged along to the party. 
Well, to, we have to explain that uh, Steve's townhouse is several stories. There's a, a large flight of stairs between the second floor and the ground floor where most of the party was going on. We were allowed to go into the piano room and, and I was yeah. just positively giddy that we were there with the piano where he wrote this song and the pencil where he must have written that song. And I was coming from the second floor to the first floor and took a very large fall. It felt like I actually still remember this quite clearly, that it felt like I was flying through the air and I landed on the floor. And there are Stephen Sondheim and John Weidman standing over me trying to come to my assistance. And Steve says, do you need anything? A drink, a pair of flats, and John, a lawyer. And for those of you that don't know, John has a law background. And so it was quite the, uh, quite the comeback. <laughs> I would have taken the case right there on the spot. <laughs> can't, the part of the story that mystifies me is what Steve and I were doing posed at the bottom of the stairs like we were waiting for somebody to come tumbling down. We'd work these lines out and we were ready to deliver them. And thank you for giving us that opportunity. That's so funny. Christine, you and I had known each other for a number of years when somehow we discovered that we had randomly actually both been at this party and I had two really strong memories. And one was being in that piano room. The other one, I said, this lady fell down the stairs. I was standing at the top of the stairs and this lady fell down the stairs. And you said, that was me. And I was like, that's incredible. And then there was a beat. And then I was like, I didn't push you. <laughs> I think it's really incredible that I was at the top of the stairs and you were at the bottom. Yeah. And Christine fell down the middle. That, See, I don't know what is going to happen in this conversation. It, it's it was destiny. We were destined to be friends. <laughs> so, John, Pacific Overtures was your first collaboration with Stephen Sondheim, right? I wanted to ask you, because we're talking all about inspiration and craft in this season of Talkback. How did that come about? What inspired you to tell the story? I backed into my career in the theater, and Pacific Overtures was the vehicle that I backed up in order to wind up where I am today. I had never, as a kid, really had an ambition to be a writer. I had always assumed that I would go into some kind of public policy position in foreign service, maybe into politics. But I arrived in college in 1964, and I'd come from a very good high school in New York City, and I was going to major in modern European history. But it was a departmental obligation that you take a course outside that field. And I took the survey course in East Asian history. This is at Harvard, which had one of the best departments in the country in East Asian history. And, uh, you know, I, I went to the first lecture and it's like my head blew up. It's like it, Asia did not exist as an idea to be examined or explored in my high school history department at all. And so suddenly I discovered that I was listening to, I was, information was being delivered to me, all of which was entirely new. And it was thrilling. I was not the greatest student in the world, but I was a student. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. And so I majored in East Asian history, particularly interested in modern Japanese history in college, but with the idea that probably I would, as I said, go into some kind of public policy thing. I had a an internship at the State Department one year when I was in college because I thought that might be a route to mining my interest in Japan. It didn't seem like it was a good idea. Graduated from college, dealt with the war in Vietnam, and dealing with it meant finding out a way not to be drafted. And then I wound up back in law school, I'm putting one foot in front of the other, making my way through my life, wondering what was going to happen next, but not being driven by any particular ambition. 
And I discovered pretty quickly that even though I really liked law school, I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I thought, what can I do while I'm here? I loved taking myself to the theater. And uh, my dad was a was an established and celebrated novelist, but he had worked in the theater for five or six years, then given it up. So I, there was a family connection to the theater as well. And I thought, and the way you do when you don't know you don't know what you're doing, I thought, I'm going to write a play. Why not? I can do that sitting in the law school library. And I did feel as if I had this body of knowledge that that white upper middle classish guys like me knew nothing about, which was the history of this other half of the world, which I really had spent four years studying. And so I sat down and I wrote a play about Perry's expedition to Japan in 1853 and what the consequence was. Japan had been closed to intercourse with the rest of the world for 250 years. It was this extraordinary event, which had an immediate significant consequence, which had then rolled forward. And I thought, I'm going to write about that. And so I started and while I was starting, I was able to get in touch with Hal Prince, who had produced one of the shows that my dad had worked on. I didn't know if he would remember me. I met him when I was a kid. I listened to your Pipeline show with Georgia and Lloyd. This gave me access to one great big end of the pipeline if I could make it work. And so I wrote Hal a letter. And he said, I do remember you. He said, I think the idea for the play is interesting. Why don't you come in and talk to me about it? And so I went and went, immediately went to New York. We had a meeting. Hal, I could tell, it was clear, that he was intrigued by the material. And so I went away, and I went back to New Haven, and I sat around, and I wrote the play, and I sent it to Hal, and he liked it, and we had a reading, and he was going to produce it as a straight play, then changed his mind and said he thought it should be a musical, and I thought that was the end of it. That what he was really saying is, I'm not going to produce your play. He took it to Steve. Steve was mildly interested, but thought it should be a play with music. But Hal was if nothing if not persuasive, and eventually the three of us were starting this musical. And I have to say, you have to understand, I had really never written anything for the theater before, and I had been a huge fan of Hal and Steve's through Company, through Follies, through Night Music, and instantly crossed the line from being a fan of theirs to being their colleague. And that was both exhilarating and also terrifying, and now here I am. Wow. And that, yeah. <laughs> did you have to try to figure out how to collaborate with one another? This has been my experience, and I'd like Lisa to speak to this, but my experience has been that different collaborations work in different ways on different projects. For example, you know, when Steve and I wrote Assassins, basically we went into a room, we wrote the show, we never talked to anybody else about what we were doing until we actually were finished. And then we started showing it to people. With Pacific Overtures, I was already working with Hal, first on the straight play, and then Steve was added to that mix. And Hal, those musicals, Follies, Company, those musicals were all referred to in those days as Prince Sondheim musicals. They all had different book writers, but the fundamental artistic collaboration was between those two guys who were also huge friends. And so I was being added to that, but I had already spent months getting over the fact that I was in a room with Hal Prince. So now I was in a room with Hal Prince and Steve Sondheim, and it just seemed like an extension of who's going to come in next, Samuel Beckett, Eugene O'Neill. I mean, <laughs> anything seemed possible. Aeschylus would not have surprised me. <laughs> so Lisa, you've had quite a journey from being not only a Tony Award winning breadist and lyricist, but also a Tony nominated actor for being in your play well. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you 
were writing for yourself as an actor that preceded, of course, Fun Home and your current collaborations. How did you decide that you wanted to write for yourself? I don't think I ever decided anything. (laughs) I think I was just, um, you know, uh, unlike John, I I didn't see theater when I was a kid. I didn't see a professional show until I was a teenager. And, but I, I think that ultimately theater is a vocation and it comes and it gets you. And that's sort of what happened to me. I was a ham and I was always bossing people around and making them do shows. Like in my little synagogue in Lansing, Michigan, we would do these Purim plays that were improvised. My parents were both very funny and captivating storytellers. And my family to this day just loves a good anecdote. And they like to tell the same anecdotes over and over again. And I think also, uh, I think my experience in the world was that, was of sort of public invisibility, that I wasn't a girly girl particularly. I was also extremely shy. I didn't register in many spaces and I didn't like it. And then it was, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. And in those years, my internal goal was to be the girl who when people talked about me, they would say, she is the funniest girl (laughs) I've ever met. And then it became really clear to me that there was this distinction for a girl between being funny and being obnoxious. And it was a very fine line. So I just made a sort of trial and error uh, study in my life of how to negotiate that line and be that person. How did, how did you negotiate the shyness that you experienced and get past that to it, want to become the funniest person anybody ever met? I mean, I don't know what to say about that. It was really extreme. I mean, if when I came to New York and I would go into temp jobs, I couldn't make myself audible. I would get in these. So I don't know. It would, it would be very situational and I don't know. Having seen Well, it's the journey from the person that Lisa's describing to the person on stage in Well is, you know, I'd like to, if my therapist was here, I'd have him come in the room and see if he could participate <laughs> in this conversation, because that's fascinating. Yeah. I don't know why that was. I was, I was scared of a lot of things as a kid, and I was very seen in my family. You know, I absolutely was given the tools to deal with the sort of fearful nature that I came with, I would say, is the short version of that. How do you go from your fearful nature and navigating wanting to be seen, but also being shy, and then putting yourself really front and center, literally telling your own stories? How did you do that? Even to this day, like I... I'm not a planner. I'm not someone who really plans three steps down the road, not to mention a larger arc of my life. And that, I think, is combined with the fact that what I what happened to me in my life was absolutely not a possible path when I started out or even, you know, I had this experience where these doors of opportunity for me as a lesbian who was open and incorporating that into what I did on stage, those doors literally opened right before I was at a place to step through them. Like the people who were my my mentors, who I saw who changed my life in the East Village, Peggy Shalos, Weaver, Deb Margolin, Holly Hughes, those people whose, you know, that work is genius. If they had been working 
five years later than they were, they would have had, they would have been brought onto different stages, but those doors just were not open. I went to a small Midwestern college and I was in the theater department and I was cast as a prison warden in Getting Out, Marsha Norman's Getting Out, in my freshman year, and as a Salvation Army sergeant or whatever. And then after that, I couldn't get cast in anything. And I was told explicitly that I didn't convey any sexuality on stage, that I was a character actress, which as I like to say is, I realized at some point was a code word for lesbian, that that if I could hang on until I was 40, I might get roles as playing somebody's mother. These were things I was explicitly told. And at that time, graduate programs took 10 men to five women. Of those women, there was one character woman who would be in that cohort. The final year of my time at Kalamazoo College, this woman named Lowry Marshall, who ended up running the acting program at Brown, but her first teaching job was at Kalamazoo College. And she had this incredible ability to look at people and say, "You, I can see it. I can see that you have a path. And of course you can have a career. And long story short, I ended up right out of college touring with this national acting company that was called the Anta Company and toured for a year. It was an amazing experience. But one of the things that happened to me there was that we did Christopher Durang's History of the American Film. And I got cast in the Swoozie Kurtz part, which is an amazing part. I could audition incredibly well. Like I just, something would happen to me when you put me on a stage and the light hit me and I was just like, I would just go. And so I would get these opportunities, but then it became really clear in that company that I had no skills to follow through, to recreate that performance night after night. And there was another actor in that company, Julie Fischel, who's an amazing actor, and she had actual craft. And I remember when we started rehearsing, I was like in the pocket and she was really searching for how to play her role. And as the tour went on, I got less and less laughs. I was just grinding myself to dust. I remember Michael Kahn saying to me, because he was the director, I remember him saying, just leave yourself alone. Just leave yourself alone. I was like, okay, but I don't even know what that means. And, uh, and I remember watching Julie get better and better and better. And I thought, I don't know what she's doing, but whatever it is, that's what I would have to learn how to act. So I never went back to school. I never went to grad school. I auditioned for graduate schools. They all rejected me. The guy from Brandeis said, you are painful to listen to. If you don't get help for your voice, you will lose it. Thank you very much. But then after that tour, I moved to New York. I didn't know what I was going to do. And again, super long story short, I ended up in the East Village with a home at the WOW Cafe, which was this lesbian theater collective. There were all these little stages. And I started just telling personal anecdotes and singing little songs. And little by little, through trial and error, teach myself to do things I didn't know how to do. And once I figured that out, then I was like, now how can I, how do I not be funny on stage and do something interesting? And that was a whole other journey. And then it was about, now I know how to tell funny stories on stage that have some depth to them, but there's something missing. I figured out 
on stage what dramatic action was and how to make that happen and what it would do for me. And then what would happen if I put other people on stage? And then it was like I'd like throw a stone out into the middle of a pond and then I'd just dog paddle and dog paddle and dog paddle <laughs> until I could get there. I, it, this may be a false equivalence, but I didn't listen to you. After, when we were done with Pacific Overtures, the question was, okay, what am I going to do next? And it could have been, I wrote a Broadway show, but now I'm going to do this or do that. And I, you know, having decided to, to stay in the theater and to really pursue a career in the theater, I realized I, I really need to teach myself what I don't know. And I had no interest in going back to school. I felt like I went to law school. I was like, that's enough with that. But I made a very deliberate attempt, su successful, I think, not just to continue going to the theater, but to particularly look at musicals, to pull them apart, to look at the way they were constructed, to look at the way the ones that I liked the way they were structured and how different elements paid off at different times and to see if I could figure out, if I could x-ray the work that I admired and see what those x-rays would reveal. And, the, and that was an intriguing and satisfying process. I love to hear that, that you both um, learned a lot about your craft through exploring what was in front of you. I want to ask you about how you find the things that compel you to sit down and write them down and potentially work on them for years and years. What element of the story really captures you? I would say, this is a, not a helpful answer, but I would say it's, it changes and is different from project to project. With a show like Assassins, I had gone to Steve with an idea for an entirely different show, just to have a conversation about it. I want to write a musical about Paris Peace Conference of 1919. And he thought that was interesting, but maybe not. It felt more like a movie. And he just said, what do you think about this? Assassins. And then there's a story about what, what was behind that word. We spent time just following that word and that idea to see where it would take us until I discovered that what I really want wanted to write about was the Kennedy assassination and my entirely unresolved feelings of loss that resulted from this blow I sustained as a kid, which had never made sense to me. And sometimes it will be more about the collaborator than about the content. What you want is it to be is for it to be about both things. Because if it's not, it's, you're not probably going to get where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you describe it like th that. The thing that's truly astonishing about Assassins is it is a theatrical experience and not even like a pageant. There is a character at the center who is yearning for something, who's after something. Yeah. You don't know it for a long time, but, the, but that organizing principle is there. The drive is not an intellectual drive. And that is really hard to do. It's rare to take those kind of event-based, history-based or politically-based topics and, and give them that human theatrical questing engine. The, a lot of the shows I've worked on have had very different forms, but I do find that even because I was using them as an example, Contact and Assassins could not be more different. But... I experienced them in a very emotional and personal way. I always found the end of contact enormously uplifting in, in what felt like a completely authentic, emotional way. And I, I've seen assassins, I don't know how many times, but when you get the moment where Kennedy is killed, it makes me cry. 
And that, that there, I have some deep emotional life, which manages to work its way up into my work when the work is successful. Mm-hmm. So interesting, too, that you talk about that moment where Kennedy is assassinated as a seminal point in your life and to be able to write the character that did the assassination. Can you talk about that a little bit? I'm really fascinated by that. Steve and I talked forever about the show before either one of us wrote wrote anything. And by the time it became embarrassing that we were still talking and not writing because it's like talking is easier than writing, so it's okay. But we really, in terms of what the structure of the piece would be, in terms of what the content of the piece, what it was going to deliver, what we wanted the audience to take away, we were on the same page. And it meant that we could each go off and do our own part. And one of the things that pleases me most about the piece is that it feels like it all flowed from the same pen. Mm-hmm. It feels like it has one author, which is something. But the, the actual writing of it, to, to your point, it wrote quite quickly. There were a lot of discoveries we made while we were writing it, but they were driven by the deep emotional muscle inside all of it, which we both knew eventually where the show was going to land. And I did figure out for myself a lot of what I had not figured out in 1963 or subsequently about what I thought that event meant emotionally as well as intellectually. Because that's why the piece grabs us so much in the audience, because of the emotional core. Yes. Lisa, do you want to talk about uh, any specific piece of yours about the process and ways that you've been working? Yeah. I was a performer first. And I think for a long time, the thing that I was obsessed with was the because I was talking to an audience in a first person, first telling anecdotes and then turning that into shows, early sort of uh, compilations of stories and things like my play 101, no, uh, 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 there was one called All My Hopes and Dreams. You know, there were a number of them that I did like at PS122. And then with 101 Humiliating Stories, that one was the first time I felt like that was a play in which something happened to me as opposed to me describing something that happened in the past, something transpired in the course of it. I think the thing, I was just obsessed with figuring out how you, how a performer coalesces the attention of an audience and channels it in the way they want to channel it. The difference between a performer standing on stage, bringing an audience through a show, and a person in a room talking with other people. Because it had become pretty clear to me that you had to gather the attention of the audience and you had to move it through your body and give it back to them. That they, you weren't a flat thing that they were observing. And that learning that, learning the chops of that, something you can only learn by doing it. And then these other questions about what makes people engage in the theater? What makes people pay attention? I'd gone from this touring company to the Wow Cafe, which was this lesbian theater collective where there were a bunch of this crazy world where people were making theater who didn't know the rules, quote unquote, of the theater. And so they did all these things you weren't supposed to be able to do. But what I would see over and over again was this crazy thing, which was when people did the thing that you weren't supposed to do on stage, like, for instance, 
leaving the stage to answer the payphone in the back when it ran, while you were in the, performing in a scene, for instance, that it was arresting. I was like, this is the most vivid thing I have ever seen. And so there was this other thing that I became really interested in, which is what what is the dynamic of the theater? What are the, What is the agreement that even people who don't know anything about the theater understand when they walk in? Why is it that the thing that everybody remembers the moment where they saw somebody go up in their lines or they saw a piece of scenery fall down? There is nothing there. There is nothing there except this imaginative construct that we all agree we're going to participate in. And the vulnerability of that falling apart is so unbearable. It's so unthinkable. And so if you can traverse across that line a little bit, you can make people feel what the theater's doing. The greatest example of this is the stage manager's monologue in Our Town. That's what he does. It's why it's one of the greatest pieces of writing. He moves back and forth and back and forth and back and forth so many times between being inside and outside of the theatrical conceit. If you look at it on paper, if you watch somebody perform it, you're just like, what's that? You're pulled in. So that, that was, I was just really interested in that. And so all of those early plays have this theatrical conceit of moving back and forth between somebody on stage talking and that dropping and this being in a room with other people. Can I ask, building on that, about Fun Home? Because I saw Fun Home Downtown at the public, and I loved it. And what I did the next day was to immediately order a copy of the graphic novel, because I really wanted to know what you left out, what you... I just, from, just from a, a professional point mm-hmm. of view, all adaptations are their own thing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and the piece on stage, without knowing where it came from, was so successful, I just wanted to know. And I would... Love to hear you talk for a minute about that process, about starting with the graphic novel and how you made whatever decisions you and Janine made about where it wound up. Yeah. It was an incredibly, unrelentingly difficult process, not in terms of the collaboration, which was one of the greatest experiences of my life, but but in terms of the unrelentingness of that material. There is... If you read the graphic novel, which for anybody who hasn't, I highly recommend it because it's a masterpiece. It feels like you're being pulled into a straightforward narrative in which things are unfolding progressively. But in fact, what actually is happening is she is re-narrativizing the received mythology of her childhood. I knew that I understood that and that most people wouldn't understand it. And I understood it because I could see that she was obsessed as I am with the difference between what happened and our narrative about what happened. And she was parsing those differences. And I knew that I had figured out how to theatricalize that experience. So I felt like I I knew how it would be But it was very difficult. Through much of the process, people told us that we should cut adult Allison because it took a very long time to make that character work, partly because, in fact, she doesn't need to say that much. It's her watching that is the action. And so we could really only understand it by putting it on its feet and seeing those time periods next to each other. What I'm hearing is that your ability to deliver that sort of brilliantly was really grew out of the earlier work that you had done in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. 
working with your own stuff. Yeah, in the book there, it feels like there are the, the there's just there's no scenes, there's no character, theatrical characters, there's no all of that had to be really constructed out of whole cloth. And the goal was to make it feel like the experience of the book. The three things that the adult Ellison does is she thinks, she draws, and she remembers. And you cannot see any of those things on stage. So it was like, what do we put on the stage? What do we have somebody do? How do we, what are the, what are the modes of theatrical expression that will allow us to communicate those things? And of course, musicals, which are not naturalistic in any way, allow you to be inside someone's head and also to have them sing things that they themselves, they're not consciously aware of. And this is about a family that is emotionally removed. And, and I think all musicals are driven by yearning. And this family yearns for connection. The music can express the connection while the characters are saying these things that are inside of their over-intellectualized consciousnesses. And that tension, I think, is what you know, works really well for that musical. I want to just segue our conversation a little bit to talk about your service to the Dramatists Guild and what inspired you to serve. John, do you want to start? Um, yeah, I'll go first. I, I got a phone call from Lynn Ahrens, who was on the nominating committee. And she said, we're talking about who, who to run for council. Do you want to run? I said, yeah, why not? That sounds great. It, it seemed like we'd be a terrific club to belong to. I didn't think I would win. I did. And I remember walking into the room to the first meeting and, and really thinking, somebody's going to turn me around and frog march me out of here. We, Edward Albert came across the room to greet me, and it, it, it might as well have been Aristophanes in a toga. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> And But I sat around and shot up for a while to get the lay of the land. And it was the mid-90s and then into the aughts were a period of time when the Guild really was confronted by the kind of stuff that I was most interested in, which were real labor relations issues. There was still a very aggressive, active part of the producing community that wanted to see the Guild put out of business. We wound up, it's a longer story, but Sondheim and I and a couple other people wound up in a room outside the Senate Judiciary hearing room, going in, getting ready to go in to testify. And Jerry Schoenfeld, who ran the Schubert organization at the time, came up to us and said, Steve, I have not come here to praise the Dramatist Guild. I've come to bury it. And that, that would now, that things have calmed down and quieted down. But at the time, it was an existential threat the way management is an existential threat to unions everywhere. And so I was very engaged with that. And also with what also seemed like a kind of an existential labor relations threat from a, a very active group of directors working through their union who were trying very skillfully to establish the idea that directors, when they finished their work, had created intellectual property which belonged to them that a director's work could be copyrighted. And the consequence of that for playwrights would have been disastrous. And the consequence for the theater generally, it seemed to me, would have been disastrous. And so I was really preoccupied with those two issues. And they were real, they were fights. And it, they required a great deal of energy, but I liked it. And everything calmed down and things are better now, but that's mostly, well, that's what I hooked into. And uh, that was the main part of what I did when I was president. When I was asked to run, it had felt to me like a total, it was a total weird fluke that I, my play well had ended up on Broadway for a, a glorious 10 weeks in which we lost every penny of our investors' money. But, but I 
considered, and in, in some ways at this point ridiculously, but still consider myself a downtown performer and playwright. And so when I was asked to run and then ran and then ended up on council, I came in to this room and similarly saw Edward Albee and John Weidman and Sheldon Harnick. It was mind-blowing. And but also presumed that my experience, to a large extent, with the professional theater was that it wasn't a place where I, in many ways, was welcomed or existed. Yeah, it, it felt like a straight, primarily male world. And so I was very taken aback by what at that point had become central concerns of the Dramatist Guild, which had to do with equity. And thanks to the work of the Lilies, the vision of Julia Jordan, the and then all of the things that have come since there, which you've been a major part, Christine, those things have actually moved the needle in ways that you know, decades of effort before then were unable to do. These people really hit on effective uh, responses and actions that have made a difference. And so that has been the work that I've been most, I would say, uh, most proud to be aligned with. Yeah, and I would just add to that, I feel as though when I was first elected to council, it still was largely a white male organization, Mm -hmm. very New York-centric, Broadway-centric, and that Things had begun to move away from that, but that took some time. And then there was an explosion in which it really moved across the country and became a national organization. But the kind of labor relations issues that I described were essential to what was going on then, but it has been enormously satisfying to see the organization create the space, very deliberately create the space in order to address the kinds of issues that Lisa is talking about. It's been wonderful to see the organization evolve and make space for what are now essential issues. Yeah. I think the thing that's shifted in my time and continues to shift is when we say we at the Dramatist Guild, that we has sees itself as more fully representative of what it should be representative of. Uh, And I think that is the basis of the equity work and has been and continues to be um, the central, some of the central work in my time. Thank you so much. I think that's a perfect place to end this conversation just for today. It's my honor to serve alongside the two of you. You have both been incredible drivers of change and advocated for playwrights for so many years and for so many reasons. And we're very grateful to you for that. And thank you for joining us today. My deepest thanks to Lisa and John. To hear all our episodes, you can find us on the Broadway Podcast Network or Apple Podcasts please be sure to rate us and leave a review. Learn more about our guests from all our episodes by visiting www.dramatistguild.com. This episode was produced by Amy Von Masick and me, Christine Toy Johnson. Music was composed by Andrea Daly. Special thanks to Recess Studios in Costa Mesa, California. Talkback is a production of the Dramatist Guild of America and is distributed by the Broadway Podcast Network. Join the conversation online by using hashtag DGTalkBack. As always, to be continued. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.